John has worked nationally, he's a brilliant leader, and he also contends with me at the gathering. He is my stage manager, and he's so big and scary that I actually do as I'm told when he's waving at me to stop talking. So uh, John has that role too. But give him a warm welcome up. Good morning. I, I see that the, the music stand's set for Carl. There we go. It's great to see you. Thank you for your welcome. Um, I'm John. I'm uh, married to Sarah. I've got four kids and I just became a granddad. Just, uh, yeah, three weeks ago. So I've now got a little uh, a grandson called Theodore, which is very posh, isn't it? But it means God's love, which is fantastic. Theodore. Uh, it, I stayed um, last night in the Casa Hotel. Very nice. But I have to say, the first time in my life, I've been to many hotels, the first time in my life that a guy at breakfast complained, right in front of me, that there wasn't enough choice of bacon. <laughs> now, from my point of view, there were two choices. And I've never had two choices before. There was streaky, or there was back. But apparently, that wasn't enough. And he spoke with a kind of northern accent. So it must be a northern thing. But I was also very pleased that they had uh, Wilkins Jam. Uh, some of you know that Wilkins Jam is a southern jam. It's from a place called Tiptree, which is my home village. I used to wake up to the smell of Tiptree Jam. So it was very lovely, and I'm sure Rich, was it Rich responsible for putting me in that hotel? Well, it was very nice of you to do so. I felt very much at home. I want to read to you uh, from God's Word. I don't know whether you bring Bibles, always a good idea. Um, I'm going to read to you from Nehemiah. Uh, a book in the Old Testament which is about passion and about growth and about fulfilling God's purpose. And uh, you may know the story of Nehemiah. He's working under the king and he hears that the exiles, that's his people, are back in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's walls are rubble. They are destroyed. They've been knocked down and the walls of the city say something about God and they say something about people and Nehemiah is distressed and he's passionately praying that God will do something to enable him to go and do something about the broken walls and he prays and he prays and he prays and we read in chapter one that he prays for four months and eventually the king says to him why are you so downhearted what's going on and Nehemiah says well the wall around Jerusalem is broken down and I want to do something about it and the king says fine off you go gives him papers and sends him on his way Nehemiah gathers the people of God together and says we're going to rebuild these walls and these walls have been broken and destroyed and the gates fallen off for over 150 years and Nehemiah prays that God would inspire him and enable him to get to the point where he can gather the people and rebuild. And we pick it up in chapter 4. Samballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, 
Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashadites heard that the work was going ahead and that gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So, I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand by guard in families and armed them with swords, spears and bows. Then, as I looked over this whole situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. Like many churches, we uh, have a food bank in our church. Leon C, where I'm from, is one of the nicest places to live in the country. It's been voted in the top five places in the country to live for many years. It's an hour's train ride out of London. We've got the seaside. We've got lovely big houses. And yet behind those houses, behind those doors and windows, are people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and wanting status and power, changing their car every other year to try and impress one another. And they are sinking because they've got all these great things that the world offers them, but they don't have any sense of purpose. And we are reaching out to people in our community like that, but also those who have got themselves into so much debt that they're now coming to our food bank on a Saturday morning. We don't rejoice in having a food bank. No church should rejoice in having a food bank because it says there are hungry people in our community. But our food bank was started by a girl called Amy. Amy's a tiny, little, squeaky-voiced girl. She is a tutor in nursing, but she sounds like a five-year-old. She's got the tiniest, squeakiest little voice you've ever heard. And Amy was living just around the corner from the church. She wasn't a follower of Jesus. She wasn't a Christian. And she was outside looking for her cat. And she knocked on a neighbor's door, a girl called Becky. Becky comes to our church. And she knocked on the door and said, could you help me try and find my cat? So Becky said, yeah, I'll help you. And they walked the streets looking for this little cat. And while they were walking, Amy said to Becky, he's gone. And Becky said, I know he's gone. That's why we're looking for him. She went, no, my husband, he's gone. He, he's walked out on us. So Becky said, look, come back to our house. And they gave us something to eat and they 
prayed with her and they supported her and they walked with her. And after a little while, they invited her to come to Alpha. And Amy came to Alpha and she became a Christian and she got baptized. And then Amy's parents noticed the difference in Amy and they said, what's going on here? We want to find out more. What's happened to our daughter? So Amy's mum and dad came to Alpha and they became Christians and they got baptized. And then Amy said to me one day, she said, John, there are hungry people in our community. We need to do something about this. And I said, do you think there are? Do you think there are hungry people just around where we live? She said, there are. I'm meeting single mums who need food, who are desperate for food, and I don't know where to take them. So we went to the churches and we said to some of the ministers, could we find out if there are hungry people? And the church leaders did a little survey of all around their churches and community, and they decided that there wasn't any reason to have a food bank in Leon C. They said there are hardly any people in our community that needs food. I went back to Amy. I said, this is what the church leaders are saying. This is what they're reporting. She said, John, if there is one girl, one family in our community that needs food, then we need a food bank. And she started the food bank. And I tell that story because I want to remind you that it started with someone being a neighbor looking for a cat. And the hero of the story is not Amy. The hero of the story is not even Becky or Becky's parents. I led Becky's parents, his, her dad, to the Lord nearly 30 years ago. The hero of the story is not Becky's grandparents in the church and her family. The hero of the story is God. Because when people reach out to God, he changes their lives. And I believe in a God who transforms lives day by day. Story after story of those who have gone the wrong way and lost themselves have discovered that in Christ there is a new beginning. And it starts with passion. And I tell the story of Nehemiah because it's about passion. Nehemiah cared about the walls. And if we're going to be visionaries, if we're going to fulfill what God wants us to do, then we need to be passionate and prayerfully passionate and get bothered about the things that are wrong in our world and in our community. I know uh, some of you will remember Popeye. Do you remember Popeye? Popeye used to get to that moment when he got so kind of fed up. And he said, I can't stand this no more. And he reaches for the spinach and suddenly becomes powerful and he wants to do something. And each one of us needs to have that kind of Popeye moment where we say, I can't stand this anymore. For me, it happened in a chip shop. You can tell I've been to a chip shop. And I was standing in a chip shop and in front of me was a, a young mum with a little toddler in a pushchair. Not a very big pushchair. And she, the, the child was crying, whinging like children do. And the mum shook the pushchair. She said, shut up. And the child continued to cry. And then the child cried a bit more and mum shook the pushchair and then hit him across the back of the head. He was only about two and I was standing right behind her. And then she got her chips and her haddock and all that kind of stuff. And she got the chips in the bag and she shoved the child forward. And she put the chips down the back of the pushchair and shoved him back on it and said, now keep those warm. And something inside of me burned with a sense of anger and passion about wanting to do something about parents who treat their children that way. 
We have to have those Popeye moments when we say, I really care about this. I feel passionate about this. I want to do something about this. And that's Nehemiah in chapter 1. I want to do something about these broken walls. I want to do something about my God and my people who are sitting there with broken walls. And he gathers the people together and he says, let's do something about it. And chapter 4 tells us that he got to the stage where the people had worked with all their heart with all enthusiasm, and the wall was built to half its height. They had begun the journey. They were on the way to fulfilling the purposes that Nehemiah had called them together for. But then they hit opposition. And any church and any leader, any passionate Christian is going to start well, but then they're going to come up against opposition. They're coming up against those moments when people say, what you're doing is a waste of time. What you're doing, it won't last. What you're doing won't happen. And if we read in the story of Nehemiah, we see that they were filled with doubt. We can't do this, they said. We're tired. Look at the rubble. Look at the resources. We don't have the resources to do what we need to do. Look, they're going to attack us. So there was opposition from within. There was opposition from the enemy. There was even opposition from their friends. Those who came alongside them and said, look, you don't want to do that. You don't want to, you don't want to get, just move on. They're going to destroy, they, you're going to build the wall and they're going to come along and destroy it. And you can imagine Nehemiah going around the wall saying to them, come on, keep going, don't give up. And the wall gets built to half its height and then Nehemiah prays and says, you know, this whole thing is so difficult and we're being opposed and it's probably a rubbish idea. And then Nehemiah does something really, I think, important, really strategic. Not only does he pray, but he responds in three ways. And there are three things. I'm a Baptist. It's three points. It's pretty simple. He does this. He says, in the face of the opposition, in the face of the spears and the arrows and the bows, he stations the people at the lowest points of the wall. He puts them where the need is greatest. He puts them in the places where the work needs to be done. And, and if we're honest, most churches are very good at looking after the bits of the wall that are already built. We like a bit of pointing. We like taking a brick and just rearranging it. Or we like decorating the top and making it look lovely. Uh, 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 we've got a brand new building. It's about uh, eight years old. Cost. 1.7 million and we're just about to do another phase another 2 million we've we've got to do it we're being opposed but i keep reminding our church that if we're going to spend this money on a building we need to spend this money on the places in our community in our community where the need is greatest and our temptation when opposition comes and when doubt comes is to down tools and hide behind the bits of the wall that are already built and to let others get on with it. But Nehemiah says, no, I'm going to put people at the lowest points of the wall where the need is greatest. And that's where God's people should be. At the place where the need is greatest. Where there are broken people. Where there are lost people. Where the wall isn't built. And God is calling us as Christians in every community. And I, I only know a little bit about what you're doing as a church. I've only heard a little bit from Carl. But I do know that you're stepping out in faith. And as you step out in faith, you'll come across opposition. You'll come across doubt. You'll look at your resources and you'll say, is this all we've got? 
And God says to Nehemiah, inspires him, put them at the low points of the wall where the need is greatest. The, the second thing that he does, I think is really interesting, is he puts them together in families. And I think that's really important. I, uh, I did some work a few uh, years ago on unity. I looked at the importance of, oh dear, oh stuff. I, uh, I uh, did some work on unity. I looked at the local church all around the world and I, I wanted to find out whether unity uh, made any real difference. And uh, it does. And what I discovered when I, I looked was this, that unity brings God's blessing. These people were being opposed and they needed one another. They were facing opposition and persecution and they needed one another even more. And when I did my little survey, I, I found out this. There is a strong incentive for unity. I even looked up a website that's called www.doubleyourchurchattendance.com. <laughs> and what I discovered was this, is that churches that grow seem to include the following factors. Provision of children's and youth ministry, younger worshippers, intentional outreach, contemporary style, less conflict. But when you go to a church where there is unity and there is love and there is laughter and there is generosity and there is hospitality, God's blessing is there. One quote caught my eye, according to a guy called Schwartz. The love quotient is calculated on the basis of hospitality and laughter in the congregations. Con growing churches have a much higher love quotient than stagnant or declining ones. Schwartz says that real love amongst church members spreads that mysterious scent that few can resist. One commentator suggests that a church that doesn't ask challenging questions about the importance of unity is a church trapped in the fog of its own ignorance. We need each other. Which is why we need to keep short accounts, which is why we need to forgive one another, which is why we need to stand alongside one another. I remember preaching this sermon back in 1989 in Uganda, and my translator was a guy called Titus Kissy Beaker. It's got to be the best name ever, isn't it? Pastor Titus Kissy Beaker. And he was about this high, even smaller than Carl. Yeah? And uh, as, I, as I told this story, I said, you know, we're supposed to stand together. And he did his bit. And I said, and we're supposed to love each other. And he did his bit. And I said, we're supposed to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another. And he jumped up in the air to get himself level with me. So I, he couldn't reach. So I got down and we stood shoulder to shoulder. And Nehemiah realizes if the wall is going to be built, if they're going to fulfill the ministry and the passion that he's put in his heart to rebuild these walls, then they need to be together in families because families will fight for one another. Families will stand together. Families will work hard for one another. They'll lift each other up because there's that deeper sense of love. They are bound together by that sense of being family, being together. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we are the body of Christ, the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore we need to fight for one another, to stand with one another, to love one another. And if we're going to rebuild the walls then we need to stand together as families. So he puts them at the lowest points of the wall and he puts them together in families. 
And there are loads of reasons why we could talk about the importance of unity. Look at what Jesus says in John 17, where he says to the Father, may they be one as we are one. Unity is a mark of the church of God. Show me a church where there is genuine love for one another and I'll show you a growing church. Show me a church where people are not agreeable, where there is no laughter, no celebrating, and I'll show you a church which is stagnant or in decline. Commentator Frank Thelman writes, if we are building and recruiting for our own social group, then it becomes difficult to tell whether at the deepest level our concern is for the advancement of the gospel or only for making our lives more comfortable by providing ourselves with more pleasant quarters and gaining legitimacy amongst our peers. So we need to make sure that we are reaching out to those who are not like us because that's the church of God. But it's tough. It's tough in the church. We upset one another. I, I've been a leader for nearly 30 years and I still upset people. I don't mean to, but sometimes I do. And therefore I need to go and say sorry and, and ask for forgiveness and to say I, I didn't mean the way that sounded. And I didn't mean to ignore you and I didn't mean to, to pretend that it didn't matter because I know that it does. And there have been many occasions in my ministry when I've asked people to forgive me. But what I've discovered in the life of the local church over all that time is that there is a ministry which is missing in the life of the church. And that is the ministry of encouragement. And if we're going to rebuild the walls, we need to be at the low places, we need to do so together, but we need to encourage one another. My wife and I had a bit of a, a tiff. You know, is, is that a northern word? Yeah, we had a little bit of an argument. It's not funny. Thanks very much. Oh, okay. I was just checking. <laughs> and uh, I said to her, I said to her, you know, darling, when I, when I preach, I said, I, I get home and I, I, we have two morning services, so I preach the same sermon twice and I'm pretty tired and I've been there about six hours and I've ministered to people and prayed with people and dealt with problems. And I, I said, I get home and, and you never ever say that what I said this morning was good. I said, you never say, oh, darling, that was really good this morning. You, you preached really well. That, that was one of your best ones. And she said this. She said, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to, do I? Because everyone else says all those lovely things at the door. And I said, but you know, the voice that means most to me is you. I said, your words of encouragement mean more to me than all those other voices. And if there is a missing gift in the life of the church, then it is encouragement. Now, those of you that read my profile will be looking at me wondering, how on earth has this guy done ultras? I did an ultra marathon. That's 62 miles in a day. So you came in. Are you running home from church? You ran too, yeah. And I've done marathons and half marathons. I'm training for the Southland Triathlon. And I remember doing a marathon in 2001 in London. And I started really well. I'd done quite a lot of training. I was a bit slimmer than I am now. And I started really well. And I was running along and enjoying myself and had my name on my T-shirt, John. And people going, go on, John, keep going. Yeah, fine. And then as I got to about 20 miles, I hit that wall and we were near the Tower of London. And this old man ran past me. He must have been about 
about 80. And he said to me, you all right, Sonny? And I was really struggling. I was really hurting. It was near the end, but I wasn't quite there yet. And every now and again, I could hear my wife's voice. And what she had done is work out where she could pop up in various places by going on the tube in London and just appearing. And I could hear her every now and again, go on, John. That's exactly how she talks. <laughs> go on, John. Go on, John. And as I got through those last three miles or so, I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. And then I could hear people on the sidelines going, go on, John, keep going, John, you're nearly there, John. Don't give up, John, keep going. People that I knew, people that I didn't know. And the last time we did the London Marathon about three years ago, there were people with placards saying, keep going, stranger. And I got to the finish line, and as I crossed the line, I could see out of the corner of my eye and Sarah kind of running along. Go on, John, you can do it. I think she was probably there with the insurance certificate just in case something was going to happen. And as I crossed the line, I, I thought my arms were high aloft. But actually, when I looked at the picture, they're kind of like this, just above my shoulders. And I keep that picture on my desk to remind me not only to keep going, but to make sure that I'm sometimes on the sidelines saying, keep going. Don't give up. You can do this. Encouragement. If you're not able to get involved in the stuff of church life, if you're not able to serve in the places where you want to serve because of your home life or because of finance or time or work or travel, then be an encourager. I can just imagine Nehemiah going round to those families going, you okay? You doing all right? Keep going. Good job. That's a great bit there. That looks fantastic. Encouragement is a fantastic ministry in the life of the church. So he puts them at the low places of the wall. He puts them together in families. And lastly, he reminds them of the power of God. Because you can't do it without God's power. It will fall. It will fail. It will end in disaster. There's a quote from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And they say this, for the Christian, every encounter, every task, every situation brims with divine possibility. With Christ, there is no ordinary. They say, we have a dream that every Christian would go into their bit of God's world confident that God could work through them, confident that Jesus is good news for the people they meet, confident that, they are, that Jesus is good news for the things they can do, confident that the, Jesus is good news for the organization they engage with. My friends, God is with you. Do not be afraid. It's the most oft-repeated command in Scripture. Not love one another or forgive one another, but do not be afraid. Step out in faith. Be bold and courageous. Be wise, but be bold and courageous. And Nehemiah reminded the people that in the face of the opposition and the doubt and the lack of resource and the struggle and the arrows and the spears of the enemy, that God was with them. And did you hear that bit where it said, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. Pray that God will frustrate the work of the enemy, that you can fulfill the plans that God has laid upon your heart. Be passionate. I say to the folks at my church, if I gave you £5,000, 
right now, what would you do with it to fulfill the ministry that God has given you? If I handed it to you now, I wish I could. That would be great, wouldn't it? I wish I could have just picked a random stranger and said, you, Madam Redcoat, here's five grand. Just imagine that you've got to use this five grand to fulfill the ministry that God has laid upon your heart. And I say to my folks, if you can't answer the question of what you would do with it, then your vision is not big enough. Think big. I've got staff who would grab and rip my arm off for 5,000 pounds to carry on the ministry that they're growing in the life of the local church. Because with God, great things are possible. He puts them at the low points of the wall. He puts them together in families. He reminds them of the power of God. That with God, all things are possible. Now, as I draw to a close, my guess is there are different types of people here this morning. There are some of you here who aren't yet followers of Jesus. I, I don't know. Carl didn't point them out and say, oh, her, him. He told me a few stories, and I was introduced to some lovely people, but I don't know. Some of you may not be believers in Christ. I hope what I've said this morning inspires you to say, do you know what? I want to be part of this. I want to be part of a kingdom where lives are transformed and changed. I want to be part of knowing a God who transforms lives, who achieves great things through broken and messed up people. There are some of you here this morning who are not yet involved and not yet committed, and maybe you need to, to get involved, to support and encourage and to give and release resources and time. Maybe your bit is to stand alongside others and to be prayer warriors for those who are working on the wall. It's never easy for leaders to talk about giving, but maybe it's time to think about sacrificial and generous giving. I, I don't know. I don't see the accounts. But that's certainly a way that we can be involved in supporting the kingdom. And there are those here this morning, and I say this not because I've been told, but because in 30 years of leading churches, I know that there are people here this morning who are so filled with what's happened in the past, they cannot step into a new future. They feel like they're a failure. They feel like they're unforgiven. So let me tell you my story. I was leading a church uh, for nearly 10 years and then it all went wrong. I, I failed. I was well known in the Baptist Union. I was being groomed, if you like, for leadership on a national level. I was well known. I've been traveling the world, working on behalf of the union to places like Leipzig and Hawaii, and being involved in World Congress. I was just invited to go and be the produ producer for the World Congress in um, Brazil. But life had got a bit on top of me. I was involved in supporting a woman who was involved in a people trafficking ring and she had decided to give evidence against them and I was her support and I was getting maybe 200 texts a day from the criminals who were trying to undo me and make life difficult and she was taken out and beaten up and gang raped. And she would come to me and tell me all these stories. And I was getting more and more distressed. And I said to the police, why don't you put her in a, a safe house? And they said, because the criminals have said that if she disappears, they will start picking off her friends. And I lived for about two years of my life fearful that I was going to be next. 
because one guy was taken out and beaten up and left on the canal and they sent me a text and it said, have they found him and the note we pinned to him? And he died three days later. Another guy was stabbed and was killed as he was on his motorbike. They, they came alongside him and stabbed him. And I went to bed each night fearful that my life was next or that my wife and my children were next. And all these pressures and all these difficulties and on the outside everything was going really well but on the inside I was crumbling and I failed. I, I made a mistake and I lost my job. I was this successful senior pastor, well-known, speaking to other pastors. But the pressure got too much and I, I just failed. I turned to alcohol, probably drinking a bottle of red a night. And my wife didn't know what to do with me and my leaders were not really aware of everything and I should have told them more, but in the end, I lost my job. And I, I planned how I would take my life. I knew exactly what I would do, and I was as ready as I could be. My wife was distressed. She didn't know what to do with me. My kids were kind of worried about me. And our best friends, Jeff and, and Lynn, they said, look, we're going to go to Hillsongs in London. And I was like, that's the last place I want to go. You know, I don't want to go in. It's going to be filled with young people. They're all going to be jumping around and dancing. And I, you know, I don't really want to do that. And I even pretended to fall over and hurt my arm on the day that we were supposed to be going. Oh, I can't go. Oh, feeling. Oh, it's really. And Sarah's like, come on. And we got to this theatre in London and we sat there. And I was interested in all the production stuff, the sound and the lights of this wonderful theatre. And then came on the worship team. And they weren't like the worship team this morning, just like nice, ordinary people. These were people in high order. Little, like Carl. Right up to the middle, and the main worship leader was tall, and then it went down the other side. And they were all dressed in the, like, the nicest gear, trendy shoes, the best stuff. And I oh, went oh, down the front, all these people singing and dancing, having a great time. Then they did an offering appeal, which went on for about 10 minutes. And I was sitting there thinking, this is the last place I want to be. And I was angry with Sarah and angry with Jeff and Lynn. Why, are you, why have you brought me to this place? And then to top it all, the speaker was an American. His name was Bucky Weems. And on he came, dazzling with his bright white teeth and his muscly body, and he had the proper, really trendy jeans on, and you could see his shoes were fantastic, and he had a white shirt on. And he started telling stories about how he was a great swimmer, and he turned around and showed them the muscles in his back. And I was like, ready to leave. I could grip in the side of the seat thinking, I'm going to get out of here. And then he told this story and he said, I was a really good swimmer. I was one of the best swimmers in our state. And there was a state final that he said, and I was uh, the best at the butterfly. That's what he pointed to his muscles. See, I was feeling sick by this point. And he said, I stood on the blocks ready to to." dive into the water and he said to win this race to be the champ of the state and he said and I dived in when the gun went and he went inexplicably inexplicably he said I swam breaststroke and he said then I realized when I got into the butterfly but by the time I got to the end I won the race but they disqualified me he said I felt such a failure he said I felt that I'd let myself down and let my parents down and let the team down out of my cockiness 
And he said, I went and sat in the baby pool. He said, and I got to the point where I didn't want to see anyone or hear anyone. So he said, I, I went forward and I lay with my face in the water. So I couldn't see or hear anything. My arms outstretched. And I would hold my breath for as long as I could. I'd lift it up. I'd take a breath. I'd put it back down again in the water. He said, and while I was there in the pool, he said, the coach was looking for me. Where's Weems? Where's Weems? Where is he? Anybody seen Weems? And then someone said, oh, oh, he's in the, in the baby pool. So he shouted from the side of the pool, Weems, Weems. Didn't hear anything. So he said, he got into the pool, came over, and he lifted me up out of the water. And he said, Weems, you have another race to swim. And as he told this story, I felt God speaking to me. And I could feel the eyes of Sarah and Jeff and Lynn looking down the row. And my friends, you may be sitting here this morning feeling, I can't, I can't be part of this because you don't know my story. And I've failed and I, I've mucked it up. But God says, you've got another race to swim. You can get back on the blocks and you can join in. You can swim again. So my challenge this morning is to be passionate about rebuilding the walls wherever you are. To be prayerfully passionate. To work at the low points of the wall. To work together. To get in unity. To forgive one another. To embrace one another. To put things right with one another. To believe in the power of God. And if, like me, you're one of those people that kind of got it wrong, or you feel like you're getting it wrong, then God says, get back on the blocks, because you've got another race to swim. By the way, the wall in Nehemiah stood in ruins for 150 years. But once Nehemiah started, it took 52 days to rebuild it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I want to pray that what I've said may be forgotten, but what you say lays deep within our hearts. That this morning, Father God, your spirit will be prompting and cajoling and encouraging each one of us to make our stand for you, whether it's to give our lives to Christ, to invite Jesus into our hearts to be forgiven, to start again, or whether it's to forgive one another or to get involved in service, or maybe it's to pick ourselves up and to start again. May your spirit do a work in us today. In Jesus' name.